How many of you this morning, it was tough, it was a difficult, a difficult decision to decide what to wear today? Anybody willing to show me your hand on that? In the chapel, people were ready and willing to admit, they did, okay, we got some down here, yeah. Uh, I'll tell you what, my least favorite time of the week, least favorite time of the week, Lindsay will tell you this, is Saturday night, late Saturday night, because I've got to decide what I'm going to wear to church on Sunday. And so Lindsay will tell you, every Saturday night, I pull up my sermon from the last week and watch it just to make sure I don't wear the same thing this week, every time. I hate picking clothes. I appreciate clothes that they cover my body, but I hate clothes, okay? I haven't bought new clothes for myself in about 15 years, all my clothes come either from my mother-in-law at Christmas or they are hand-me-downs from Brescian, okay? So if I look like a middle-aged dad, you have my mother-in-law to thank. If I look like a trendy young thing, you have Brescian to thank, okay? So uh, all my clothes. This morning, I'd made a choice, a shirt I was going to wear, I'd ironed it, and I was walking out the door, and Lindsay said, are you um, going to wear that? Which sounds like a question. It's not just for the record. And so uh, I, that's why I'm wearing a short sleeve shirt because I didn't have to iron it today. I know it's 40 degrees outside and I'm a little chilly, uh, but this was what was ready. I hate deciding what to wear. I hate it. Okay. And life, you know, in your life, you're making decisions all day long, every day. And some of those decisions are tough. Some of you, if I asked for a show of hands, would admit that making decisions is not the easiest thing in the world, maybe not the easiest thing for you. I came across this the other day. It was the, maybe you've tried to come up with ways to make decisions. Maybe you've made like a pros and cons list before, flipped a coin, pros and cons list. I found this. This is the, the pros and cons of making a pros and cons list, okay? So let's see this. Pros, lists are fun. Two, it makes you appear thoughtful and deliberate. Three, great practice at drawing straight lines. Cons, clever way of rationalizing a bad decision. Man, how many of you have done that? I read another article about the pros and cons of pros and cons, and it said pro, they work, con, not always. Like, I'm thinking especially about our young people today who our, our vision is to build up the next generation. And in this life, our young people are going to make decisions every single day that have great significance. Decisions about what they're going to do when they graduate, what they want to do with their life, who they're going to marry, if they're going to marry, how they're going to glorify God every day of their lives. And those of you who are older, who are beyond that point, know that decisions don't get easier. You're making decisions about how to care for kids, maybe, how to prepare for retirement, how to take care of your aging mom and dad, making decisions for them, maybe. It doesn't get easier to make decisions. And yet, like part of being a disciple of Jesus Christ, part of being among the people of God is making decisions that glorify God. How do we do that? How do we do that? So we're in this series called Gospel Life out of the book of Acts. And we're going to be in Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 27 today. And let me, let me set this up for you. As I read through the book of Acts, which is the story of the first followers of Jesus, what I am struck by are the incredible and very hard decisions that they make easily and one after another. Now, not every decision that they make in Acts is perfect. I'm thinking about Ananias and Sapphira. I'm going to preach on them in a few weeks, these two people who try to cheat the Lord and wind up dead. So not every decision that 
they make is perfect. But on the whole, the story of the first believers are these incredible and what we would consider very hard or risky decisions that they make easily in great faith. So how do they, how do, they do that? Well, let me set up this in Acts chapter 5, 27. The apostles have been arrested for the second time in two chapters. And they're arrested for what they're doing. They're healing people in the name of Jesus. And the Jewish leaders don't like that. And they're arrested for what they're saying. They're preaching about new life in Jesus Christ. And again, the Jewish leaders don't like that. And so they arrest him for a second time. The Sanhedrin does. That's the Jewish leaders of the time. They throw him in jail and they say to themselves, let's leave him in jail overnight to let him think about what they've done and we'll talk to him tomorrow. But what they don't expect is that an angel of the Lord comes and busts them out of jail in the middle of the night. And those apostles who've been told to stop preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus, head right back out and keep preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus. And so the Sanhedrin, they go and they hear about this and they go and find the apostles. And it's incredible to me, they don't ask them, hey, how did you get out of jail? Instead, they have this conversation. So let's pick this up in 527. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, the name of Jesus. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince, master, and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance for the forgiveness of their sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. How many of you grew up watching Star Trek? Anybody willing to admit that? More of you are willing to admit that than that pick and close is hard for you. All right, I've got a Trekkie down here. Um, I, I used to watch Star Trek with my dad. And Star Trek, the Starfleet, has a, what's called the Prime Directive. Does anybody remember this? The Starfle- Starfleet General Order 1. And that is no matter what they're doing, if they're going to save some alien species or keep a planet from blow- blowing up or they're beaming up Spock, like whatever, whatever they're doing, they have this fundamental rule. And that rule is for them that they're not allowed to interfere with an alien species, their development, their cultural development. So if this alien species doesn't know about Starfleet, They've got to get in and get out without being seen. So beneath every decision they make is the prime directive. So they may make countless decisions during the mission, but they've got to follow that one above all. And what I think Peter's offering us here, if we throw that back up on the screen, we must obey God rather than human beings is what we might call the gospel's prime directive. That beneath every instruction that you and I are trying to follow of the Lord's is this basic principle that what the Lord wants us to do matters more than anything. And that what I should do is obey God rather than human beings. Uh, We talked about this last week. Jesus summarizes the law and the prophets. He says the law and the prophets can be summed up this way, love God and love your neighbor. This is the most important thing. Well, beneath that is actually this gospel principle. You should care what's important to the one who gives us the law. You should do what God wants us to do and not what anybody else wants us to do. So you can kind of see beneath every instruction that we have 
in the Bible that we have within the people of God, the church, the community, beneath every instruction is actually this principle that you and I should obey God rather than human beings, but that's not always easy, is it? And the reason that it's not easy is that all of our decisions are made under pressure. And you actually see that in the principle itself. The principle is we must obey God rather than human beings. And the idea there is that every decision you make not only has behind it God's desires, but in front of it, the desires of others, whether those are human beings or spiritual powers that are against the Lord. I tried to think of a visual for this. Y'all know I like riding my bike. So so a bike rider up on the screen here. I love to ride my bike, and there is nothing sweeter when you are riding a bike than a tailwind. A wind that's blowing from behind you, blowing you along. You feel so fast, so fit. You feel like you should be a professional in the Tour de France. Like, look at me, everybody, in your cars with my tailwind. You just feel great when you have a tailwind behind you. There is nothing worse in bike riding than a headwind. A wind that's blowing straight. Like It's like you run into a wall. This wind's blowing at you so hard. There's nothing worse when you're riding a bike than a headwind. And what this principle is actually saying is that you and I are like bike riders that are cross-pressured. Pressure from behind and pressure from the front. So there's what God wants us to do. He's blowing us along, trying to make our decisions easy and obvious to us. And then there is opposition to God that's blowing in our face. And so for us, making decisions is hard because we're trying to make our decisions in a tornado on a bike. Right? You see that? Okay. Uh, for the record, Deacon, my youngest, learned to ride his bike last week, but he has not learned how to stop. Yeah, so keep that in mind in your prayers. Let me, let me talk a little bit more about this principle, and we'll, we'll think a little bit more about this here in a second. But this is the second time that Peter and the apostles lay out this gospel prime directive, this gospel principle for making good gospel decisions. The first time is in Acts chapter 4, during the first encounter they have with the authorities who are trying to get them to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And so if you come back with me one chapter to Acts chapter 4, we read this in 4, 18 to 21. And you'll see the principle there, slightly different words, basically the same. Look at this. Acts 4, 18 to 21. And then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach it all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, well, which is right in God's eyes? To listen to you or to him? You be the judge. As for us, we can't help speaking about what we have seen and heard. So here they have instructions from the Lord to witness to the name of Jesus to the ends of the earth. That's how Acts 1 starts. Somebody tells them not to. They run into opposition, and they're very clear, even though that opposition comes with great threat and great power, they are very clear still what they're supposed to do. It's simple to them. So after this, they go back home and they reflect on what just happened. They're like, here we are. We're trying to preach the good news of Jesus, and people keep trying to stop us trying to make these decisions hard for us, and they reflect on why that is. And this, they reflect in a prayer. This is what they say later on, verse 24 in Acts chapter 4. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, all the powers yours. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father, David. David said this, why do the nations rage 
and the people plot in vain. The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed ones. See all the language of antagonism to the Lord here. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with boldness. So here's what the apostles get. And it's really important to get this as you head out into a world trying to make gospel decisions. They get that as soon as they joined God's team, that they got great allies. They got the God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit who are all on their side and have been on the side of the people of God since the beginning. But they also got great opponents. Those who are against God with everything they have. Now, how do you and I experience that opposition? Think with me about that. Let me take you back to the very beginning, to the Garden of Eden. We have Adam and Eve, and they have been given instructions to follow. And one of those instructions is that they shouldn't eat from a certain tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And for them, that's a very simple decision to do. Of course, they're not going to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because God told us not to eat from that tree. But then the serpent enters the garden and influences them to make a bad decision. And the way to think about this is that the serpent is not opposed to Adam and Eve. At some level, the serpent does not care about Adam and Eve. Who is the serpent opposed to? God. But because the servant opposes God, we face difficult decisions that beforehand and otherwise would not have been difficult. Do you see that? The way that we experience opposition to God, think about it like this. We'll throw this up on the screen. Opposition to God means difficult decisions for us. It's one of the main, it, it often means suffering and persecution and other things, but one of the main ways that you and I experience opposition, spiritual opposition to God in this world is by hard decisions. We're glorifying God isn't clear to us what to do. Now, I have in my notes here that this makes me, this principle makes me pastorally and parentally sympathetic. I can't, I can't tell you how many times in ministry <clears throat> somebody's done something, and I'm like, why did you do that? Or maybe I've had similar experiences in parenting a time or two. And it helps me to be reminded that decisions aren't always easy because there is strong opposition to God in the world that we experience. It's that headwind, even as God's trying to blow us along with the tailwind, a lot of people are trying to ride bikes in tornadoes, and that's hard. Okay. <clears throat> so how do I make good decisions? Every morning, you, you probably pray some, some version of the Lord's Prayer, which is a prayer, among other things, that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. How do I know what God's will is and do it? Okay, let me give you a, a principle that I'm, gonna, I'm deriving here from Acts chapter 5. And this, I didn't come up with this. I, this came from a writer named Scott Hubbard. I was working on this sermon and I found this. And this was like exactly what I was trying to say. He said it better. So I'm taking it from him. 
And this is his principle or application of Acts 5. This is it. Do the will of God you do know so that you can discern the will of God you do not know. If you're a note taker, write this down. Nobody's writing anything down. Cool, cool, cool. Do the will. We got one right here. Thank you. Do, do the will you do know. And then you'll be able to discern the will you don't know. What do I mean by this? Let me remind you of a story that Jesus tells. Jesus tells a story about two guys who are building houses. Remember this? One guy's building on rock, and the other guy's building on sand. And we don't really think it matters, except that a storm is coming. A tornado, a headwind is coming their way. And the house that's built on sand isn't going to stand. And Jesus says this about the house built on rock. He says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Or James tells us this. He puts this even more simply, maybe. James echoes what Jesus says. He says, don't merely listen to the word. Do what it says. In some ways, this is, this is so simple that you're like, Eric, I can't even believe you're preaching on this, but I, this is something we often fail to do. And that is that like simple obedience to the basic and essential will of God is not hard or difficult or mysterious. Let me, let me frame that maybe a little bit differently. <clears throat> you and I are trying to figure out what God's will is. God's basic will, his essential will, what God wants all of his people to be doing all of the time is actually spelled out for us very clearly in God's word. Uh, God wants us to pray, to be in the word, to be part of the community of faith and investing there, to use our gifts for that community of faith, to honor our mother and father, to lift up our brides, to care for our children, like all of the basic things laid out in scripture that you and I should be doing those things. And it is through doing over and over again, making a thousand decisions every day to do the basic will of God, that when I come to the situational will of God, some situation that I don't know exactly what to do, that it's clear to me because I have practiced living in the will of God for so long. That you do the will of God you do know so that you can discern the will of God you don't know. Look with me. This is, this is how Paul says it in Romans 12. Don't conform to the pattern of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He's talking about the process of doing God's will over the course of your life until that transforms even the way that you think so that what? Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, presumably his situational will in a situation you don't know what to do at first. Then you will know how to do it, his good and pleasing and perfect will. Uh, So let's throw this back up there. And maybe if you're a note taker, you will write it down this time. Okay, so this principle, I'm gonna do the will of God I do know so that I can discern the will of God I don't know. Think about that. I'm reading through Acts all the time in preparation for this sermon series, and one of the things I'm struck by, if you read through Acts, 
is you have these little passages in nearly every chapter. You have them in Acts chapter 1, 14, Acts chapter 2, 42 to 47, Acts chapter 4, 35 to 42. You might go back and you look at those passages, and they, they're just these summary passages, and they're, they're basic, they're a bit mundane even. It says something like the church was always getting together. They were praying together. They were sharing their stuff. They were studying and listening to God's word together. They were giving each other what they needed. They were just doing kind of the basic stuff every day. That's what those passages say. And it's easy to skip over those passages until you come to passages like this in Acts 4 and Acts 5, where the apostles make these radical, unbelievable decisions at threat of jail or maybe even death, it's very clear to them what to do. Why is it clear to them what to do? Because every single day they are doing the basic will of God day in and day out. And so that when they're up against it, not knowing what to do, it's actually very clear to them in those moments. And don't you want to be like that? Yeah, that's, that's how I want to be. Now, okay, <clears throat> I'll make two closing remarks here. If you are an astute Bible reader, you'll know that before Acts chapter 5, when they say we must obey God rather than human beings, that they are visited by an angel, the same one who busts them out of jail, and the angel tells them exactly what to do, to keep preaching no matter what. And you're thinking to yourself, Eric, my hard decision would be a lot easier if an angel would visit me and tell me what to do. Like you're kind of conveniently leaving that out. Well, for the record though, Acts chapter four, the first time they make a decision to keep preaching even though they're being opposed and they say the reason they're doing it is obedience to God is before they have ever been visited by an angel. The angel just comes and affirms what they already know is the will of God. So just as a caveat, if an angel ever comes and tells you to do something that is outside the will of God, it's probably not an angel. But an angel should always affirm what God already has made clear that he wants from us. So I do the will of God I do know so that I can discern the will I don't. Let me finish with a story here. <clears throat> I was thinking about this story this week, maybe because it's the start of Black History Month, and, uh, but really just more because of what I was reading in this passage, a story about Rosa Parks. Now, most people in this room know the name Rosa Parks. Maybe some of our young people haven't heard her name yet. But in the 1950s, in the height of segregation, among other laws, one of the laws was that African Americans were forced to ride on the back of public buses. And Rosa Parks refused that. She said, on the front of a public bus one day and started in many ways the civil rights movement, although there had certainly been other important catalysts. Okay. A couple of years ago, I got to go on this trip to Alabama with all these preachers. There's nothing like a road trip with preachers. And um, we got to meet Fred Gray. Does anybody know that name? Fred Gray is a legendary civil rights attorney. He was the attorney for numerous important civil rights cases over the years. He was the attorney for Martin Luther King Jr. And when he was fresh out of law school, he was Rosa Parks' attorney. And so we get to spend time with Fred Gray. He's at his 80s at this point, and he's talking about Miss Rosa Parks. And I'll tell you, the version of the story that I had always heard growing up was that she had worked that day at a tiring job all day long. She got on the bus. She was too tired to go to the back. She sat down. When the bus driver told her to go to the back, she was just simply too tired to get up, and so she stayed put. 
And Fred Gray looked at us. He said, you know that version of the story? Well, she wasn't tired. <laughs> at least not of that. Okay. And so he then begins to tell this character sketch of Rosa Parks, who he knew well. They would eat lunch together throughout the week pretty often. And uh, she worked for an organization that he worked with too. So he knew her really well. And he began to tell these stories about who she was. And she talks about this in her autobiography, which is called Quiet Strength. She talks about her grandparents and their faith and how they poured their faith into her. And this is what she said. Every day before supper, every day, before supper and before we went to services on Sundays, my grandmother would read the Bible to me and my grandfather would pray. We even had devotions before going to pick cotton in the fields, she said. Prayer and Bible became part of my everyday thoughts and belief. So she was active in her church. She carried a Bible with her everywhere she went, presumably on the bus that day. She had a Bible with her. 30 days before her arrest on the bus, she had been at a gathering with Fred Gray and a number, number of other faithful Christian women who had invited him to come and speak to them. And this is what he had said in his speech to them. He said, during these crucial days, days of great decision, may the God of heaven direct us and help us. May he bless us and assist us. So here she is like daily praying and in God's word participating in the life of her church, carrying the Bible with her everywhere she goes, surrounded by faithful people who are actively praying that God would guide them and direct them in this time of great decision. And so she says, when the moment happened on the bus, I instantly felt God give me the strength to endure whatever would happen next. God's peace flooded my soul and my fear melted away. She said in that moment. Now, one version of history is to look back and say one woman's situational decision in a moment changed the course of history. But the way that she looked back on that story was that the thousands of faithful decisions she had made to God's will over the course of her lifetime prepared her to make that one. And it was those decisions that had ultimately changed history and not just the one. You get that? Now, you may never have to make a decision against unjust laws like that, and I hope you don't, but every decision you make is under pressure. Opposition to God means difficult decisions for us, and I pray you'll do the will you know of God's so you can discern the will you don't. Let me pray over you. God, would you help your people here in this place to honor you with glorifying decisions? Decisions, God, that praise your holy name and show the world who we are as your people, obedient to you above all. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.